This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. It's 3 o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors, like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream, are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings, or the midnight munchies, yeah, you know who you are, with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, a special edition from Saudi Arabia. Imagine a closed kingdom to the outside world for nearly 80 years. The only travelers who got visas were religious pilgrims. And then, nearly three years ago, Saudi Arabia swung open its doors to tourism. Everything from virtually undiscovered UNESCO World Heritage Sites to 90 undeveloped, unexplored islands in the Red Sea. Forests, you heard me, forests, deserts, and a strong movement to preserve the heritage and culture. I'll speak with John Pagano, the CEO for the Red Sea Development Company, on what's happening with those 90 islands. In Jeddah, I'll talk with Ahmed Angawi about the old city and its architecture and design and preserving the very process that built that city. Then we'll stay on the coast and talk with Fawaz Farouki, the managing director of Cruise Saudi. And then a most interesting conversation with Fahd Hamidadin, the head of the Saudi Tourist Authority, an entity that didn't even exist four years ago. And finally, I'll travel to another World Heritage site, Alula, and sit down with Dr. Rebecca Foote, director of archaeology and heritage research, and talk about all the work and the discoveries that still continue. First up, from the Red Sea Development Company, John Pagano. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move, or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. 
Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. As many of you know, I've been coming to Saudi Arabia for more than 30 years, actually 32. I first came here during uh, Gulf War One in a place called Dharan, a completely different location than where we are today because I don't see any Scud missiles where I am right now. But where I am right now, is with the CEO of the Red Sea Development Corporation, John Pagano. Uh, one of the most amazing developments I've ever seen, 90 separate islands that were untouched, unseen, uninhabited, un unexplored, if you will, for hundreds of years. And now, uh, as part of, a, of an effort to develop Saudi Arabia for tourism, you're developing them now. We are indeed, and thank you for having me, Peter. Well, you know, there's one thing to say you're developing them, because most people, when they hear the word development, go, uh-oh, here it comes, right? It's going to be high-rises, Miami Beach, Cancun, and rolled into one. That's not the case here. And that, yeah, that couldn't be further from the truth. So I think the way we like to think about development and, and the environment is that they can happily coexist, but you have to do things differently. So when, we first, when I first got here, first of all, I was surprised by what I saw because it was never in my imagination that the Red Sea and Saudi Arabia had such beautiful islands and coral reefs. Well, 90 of them. Yeah, uh, yeah, an archipelago of 90 beautiful islands, pristine, untouched, as you said. But, uh, but we wanted to do things differently. So instead of bringing the contractors in and bringing the architects in to start with, we actually brought the scientists to work alongside us. So we worked with, a new part, with our partner, the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, and we, we set about studying the destination. We did baseline surveys of the marine environment, of the terrestrial environment, really to understand what was the environment that we were dealing with and how could we then develop it in harmony with the environment rather than against the environment. So, you know, to, to really work with nature, which is really important to us. So we undertook a, a marine spatial planning simulation, which was effectively to look at the entire destination, map it all out, assign a conservation value. And instead of just simply maintaining the status quo, in other words, sustainability, we said, how do we make the place better? So we set ourselves a goal of increasing the conservation value over the next coming decades by 30%. Because the definition of sustainability is just don't mess it up. Indeed. Right? right? Yeah, sustainability is no, don't make a mess of the place. We're now of the view, and I think increasingly the world is becoming to that same conclusion, is sustainability is no longer enough. The trajectory that we're on is not a, does not lead us to a happy place. So we need to start undoing some of the damage of the past. So we've, we've coined the term regenerative development. And by that we mean making the place better. You know, doing things to enhance the environment rather than exploiting the environment. And that's the approach that we're taking on the Red Sea. So yes, development does conjure up images of Miami Beach. It's not what we're doing here. This is working with nature and in nature so that we are complementary and actually improving the destination rather than degrading it. Now the typical development approach is if somebody says to you, which never happens, you got 90 islands to play with, you're gonna play with all 90. That's not what you're doing here. No, absolutely not. So, you know, as I said, through that, through the scientific effort that we undertook, we've determined our ecological ceiling. We can't support anything more than 750 to a million visitors a year. And so we're very selective on what we're developing. So we're gonna leave 75% of these islands untouched. A number of them are of very significant conservation value and importance. 
you know, one of the islands is Alwakadi, which is, you know, critically important for the critically endangered hawksbill sea turtle. So it's an island that would have made a beautiful destination, but for the fact that it's a critical nesting site for this particular endangered species, so we're not going to develop that island. So that's off limits. That's totally off limits. And there are a number of those islands that are of, of high conservation value that will be carefully managed so that people will not be allowed to go on there unless they're escorted by rangers that will understand the sensitivities around those islands. This is a kingdom that was essentially closed for 79 years. The only people who came in were for religious tourism purposes, but tourism as we traditionally know it was really not a big deal. It's suddenly becoming a focus. Why? Well, look, everybody should be aware of the, the Crown Prince's Vision 2030 ambitions for the kingdom. I mean, part of it is to diversify the economy. And we all know that tourism is an important global economic sector. It represents over 10% of global GDP. It employed one in 10 people worldwide before the pandemic. In fact, the last five years before the pandemic, it was one in four people. So it's a significantly important economic sector. So we're moving into that space because, as, as you said, it, Saudi Arabia wasn't known for, for tourism, and it represents an, a wonderful opportunity to grow the economy, but to diversify it away from oil, and that's what we're doing. And of course, you talk about diversification, it's also diversification of experience. Well, absolutely. Again, again, the, the destination and Saudi Arabia as a whole is a very interesting place, much more much more diverse than you would have imagined. And as I said, we have an archipelago of islands with pristine coral reefs, we have mountains, we have desert areas. So what we're trying to create here at the, at the Red Sea is a, as a, an integrated destination that offers a variety of experiences. So we can offer you sun and sand, but we can also offer you a Bedouin experience. So sleep under the stars like the Bedouins did. And that's, I think, what people are going to really appreciate about the destination, to have multiple experiences in one vacation. Now you mentioned the coral reefs. The coral, de the coral denigration, if you will, around the world has been substantial. Here you have 90 islands where the coral has not really been destroyed, but in the process of development, you've got a challenge, don't you? Absolutely. Look, I mean, one of my biggest, people say, what keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night is making sure that we don't do anything to damage this precious and, and fragile environment. So we take every precaution that you can imagine to ensure that we don't damage this, this fragile ecosystem. Specifically related to coral reefs, we have an, an opportunity here to really come to understand why the coral reefs in this area are thriving where others are perishing. So we're working with, our, again, our scientific colleagues, both here at, in, in the kingdom as well as international NGOs, to work towards understanding why they thrive and perhaps offer hope to reef systems around the world that maybe we can help to undo some of the damage of the past. So we're not complacent, we're not taking our coral reefs for granted, but we're actually seeking ways to enhance and create abundance. So for example, we're growing coral in the laboratory right now that we're gonna then transplant into the wild. We're working with another NGO where we're actually enhancing the reproductive cycle so that we can build, build more abundance so protect ourselves against future shocks. And as I said, if we can learn the secrets of our corals and apply them to the Great Barrier Reef or the Caribbean reefs, then hopefully we can restore what is a very important eco ecosystem for the, marine, the, the health of the marine environment. As you know, coral reefs only cover a quarter, a quarter of 1% of the entire ocean, but they support 25% of marine life. So we need to keep this, this ecosystem alive because it really speaks to the health of the oceans and ultimately to the health of people. Are you trying to learn and apply the lessons from the mistakes of others? 
Absolutely. So we're the beneficiaries of this beautiful environment not having been touched for decades. And so we've learned the lessons that others have, you know, the mistakes that others have made. And so, you know, our goal is to not make those same mistakes. We, we shouldn't make those same mistakes. We're smarter. We know what, you know, the bad effects that can happen if you do things incorrectly. And we're not going to make those mistakes. So I think that's going to really position us very well. Of course, that's going to cost you more money. Absolutely, but what price do we put on our future? Our children's future, our grandchildren's future. We need to spend that little bit extra, but I think the consumer is ready for it. They're prepared to pay that little bit extra if you're taking care of a precious environment. We only have one planet, so unless we take care of it, who else will? What's the one thing you were planning to do that you didn't do because you finally discovered not a good idea, or what's the one thing you thought you could never do here that you are doing? Well, look, as I said, I think the, the islands, as we, as we discovered the sensitivities of, of some islands versus other islands, I, I give the example of al Wakadi. Again, this would have been a picture-perfect resort. It has everything going for it. I'm going to take you there later. Um, and it would have been a fantastic resort. But if we develop that island, we potentially accelerate the extinction of the, of the Hawksbill Sea Turtle, one of the most beautiful of its kind. And so we chose not to develop that island. I think that's, that's a, you know, a good example of you know, something that I wanted to do, but ultimately decided not to do it because it was you know, contradictory to our ambition to protect and enhance the environment. And what's the one thing that you didn't think you could do that you are gonna do? Um, that's a tough question. Um, look, I think we, we, we're very selective as to where we develop. And, and so there are islands that you thought maybe you couldn't develop, but actually we can. And we are developing islands that are of lower conservation value, but are still going to be equally beautiful and create a wonderful guest experience. There are laws in countries like Thailand that you cannot build hotels of more than 61 units unless you provide for employee housing, you, employ, you, you basically comply with regulations about gray water, black water, I mean, all the things that you can't pump raw sewage into the bay, all those things. So you see these 300 unit hotels and they're pumping raw sewage into the bay. How did that happen? Well, they went around the law and they sold units, packages of 60 units each in a 300 unit hotel corporation complex, right, to individual owners, and then they violate the law. Well, as you know, they had to close the beach. I mean, how stupid is that? So when you were developing this, what did you deal with in terms of black water, gray water, employee housing? How did you accommodate for that? Well, look, we wanted to do things differently at the Red Sea. As I said at the very beginning, we approached the development in a totally different way. And we want to be the leaders of regenerative development. We want to show the rest of the world that you can actually do things differently, more responsive. So for example, the Red Sea will be the largest tourism destination in the world, powered 100% by renewable energy, 24 hours a day. So you're not going off the grid? We're totally off grid. We're, to do that, we're going to build the biggest battery storage system in the world to date. Now, that's going to cost us more money, but in the process, we save 500,000 tons of CO2 emissions that we would otherwise be generating into the atmosphere. So that's one example. Now, we produce our own water. All of the sewage that is created, we treat and we use that for irrigation purposes to minimize our water consumption. So we're taking all of the steps and precautions to ensure that our utilities infrastructure is consistent with our environmental ambitions. In terms of worker welfare, you know... But before you get to that, let's talk about solar. This will totally be powered by solar? Totally. 
24 hours a day. Never been done before on this scale. As I said, we'll be the biggest tourism destination in the world, powered 100% by renewable energies, 24 hours a day. We're building a district cooling system, the largest in the world, powered by renewable energy. So we're setting a number of world firsts. My ambition is not to be not to be the biggest because I want somebody to eclipse us. I want the next developer somewhere else in the world to follow our lead because we're showing you that you can do it differently, that you can have a positive impact on the environment. Worker welfare, I, I need to go on to worker welfare because it's hugely important. Far too often, workers are exploited. What we did here at the Red Sea, I mean, I'm talking about the construction workers, I'll come on to our staff ultimately. Even construction workers, we took good care of them. We're building and have built a worker village built around neighborhoods with open spaces, with, with landscaping, with things for them to do in their downtime, like recreational facilities, like sports field. In the evening, they're playing cricket, they're playing soccer, they're playing basketball. We have cinemas. We have a medical facility to take care of their health needs, not just a response to accidents and, and injuries, but ultimately, you know, primary care where if somebody's not feeling well, they can actually go and speak to a doctor and be diagnosed, we do a limited amount of diagnostics right there in situ. It, it's really setting the bar higher for others to follow us. Our philosophy is if you take good care of the workers, they will build with greater care. We'll end up with a better product at the end of the day. And I think that's, you know, it's a win-win situation and it's the right thing to do. In terms of our own staff, the, the staff that are going to come and work at this destination, we're building them a resort town, a brand new town that in the first phase is going to accommodate 14,000 people. And we're providing them with a beautiful environment. In fact, this is the environment that that they're going, to, they're going to experience with beaches, with beach clubs, with cinemas, with all the civic and, and social infrastructure. We have a, we're building a hospital, we're building schools, we're building retail and amenities so that they have a wonderful lifestyle and they'll be able to walk to the beach within 500 meters. But you also have to then fuel that pipeline, you got to train them. We do. And, and you know, training is a big, big imperative for us. We've awarded 120 scholarships to the University of, for students to study at the University of Prince Megrin, which has aligned themselves with the Col Hotelier de Lausanne, which is one of the most famous hospitality schools in the world. These young 120 students are, gonna, are studying international hospitality management. There were 12,000 applications for those 120 spots. Now we're expanding that program by another 100 this year and we'll continue to roll that out. But it's not just the higher education. We have 600 students today studying hospitality, engineering, renewable energy, our airport operations. Again, studying vocational training, doing vocational training, and all of whom will ultimately be employees of the destination. So we're going to create um, between the Red Sea and one of my other projects, Amala, 120,000 jobs, you know, and we have to provide the skills and the opportunities, but we're there for them. And we're working with our government agencies to, that are supporting us and ultimately training the workforce of the future to help Saudi Arabia fulfill its ambition of diversifying its economy. And of course, with those kind of numbers, you better be building an airport. We are building an airport. In fact, the air side of the airport is going to be finished this summer. It's a, a, an international airport, but we're doing the airport in a different way. The airport is not your big cavernous terminal building. It's all built around creating, when you arrive at the airport, you're arriving at the destination. That's the, that's the ambition that we've uh, set ourselves. Now the airport from an environmental point of view is a bit of a sore point for us, but we're trying to do things to mitigate. So for example, we will provide sustainable aviation fuel day one. I think that's important because the industry is going to take time to evolve in terms of, you know, changing to a different source of fuel to become greener. But in addition to that, we're looking at ways to actually sequester the carbon 
that guests flying to the destination will ultimately generate. So we're gonna make them travel guilt-free and we're gonna do that using a combination of nature-based and technological solutions. We're gonna grow micro and macro algae to sequester the carbon. We might even turn that micro algae subsequently into biofuels and refuel the plants so they can go back and not increase their, the uh, carbon footprint of their travel. You just buried the lead. Guilt-free travel, count me in. There you go. But I want guilt-free travel about everything I do. Well, I can only address what the travel at the Red Sea, but as I said, if people follow our lead, then this will hopefully gain some momentum and others will follow it. And maybe over time, people will be able to travel guilt-free because people are doing the right thing by the environment. My thanks to John. The old city of Jeddah is one of my favorite coastal cities because so much of it has remained undiscovered and unexplored. But one of the goals here is to make Jeddah one of the top 10 cruise ports in the world. So how can they do this sustainably, not to mention responsibly? I sat down with Faraz Farouki, the managing director of Cruise Saudi, to find out. There are so many perceptions about Saudi that have to be disabused. And one almost indirectly has to, to do with, with cruising. Most people would never think of Saudi Arabia as a port or as a... Um, as an opportunity for cruise ships to come in. And yet, go get a map, boys and girls. It's called the Red Sea. And there's an opportunity all the time. In fact, ships have been coming to Saudi Arabia since there's been a Saudi Arabia. Now the question is, will cruise ships come? And uh, you know what? The old idea that if you build it, they will come might actually come true here because there's, a, there's a, an almost desperate need on, on the part of cruise ships to re-innovate re their itineraries, their ports of calm, their, their shore excursion opportunities, not to mention the experiences that their passengers are going to have in certain destinations that they can't have anywhere else in the world. Joining me, the Managing Director of Cruise Saudi, Fawaz Farouki. Fawaz, thanks. Thank you, Peter, for having me. So let's talk about this. I remember, and this goes back, believe it or not, to 1970. Me on the, on the Red Sea, in, in, at that time, in, in a lot and looking out at the, at the water and watching all the ships coming up the Red Sea. And if they turned left, they went to Israel. If they turned right, they went to Saudi, right? Uh, and, and, and of course, if they turned right, they were empty because they were getting oil and they were leaving, right? Well, that's still going on, but now you're in a huge development phase now of making Saudi Arabia not just an open country for the first time in almost 80 years, but available to the cruise ship as well. Definitely. We, our, and our ambitions are big. We want to be one of the top 10 cruise ports uh, in the world. We want to reach 1 million passengers by 2030. And we, uh, we're not only activating the Red Sea, but we're also activating the Arabian Gulf. So when you just spoke about Saudi, naturally, there is uh, the merit is there. Just before COVID in 2019, there were 96 cruise ships passing by the Red Sea in Saudi Arabia and not stopping, not even for refueling. Because they never did. Exactly. So there is a huge opportunity, and we want to capitalize on that. Not only that, but actually, as you've uh, seen um, um, all over Saudi Arabia, I believe our uh, touristic depth, so I call it touristic depth because it's, it relies on culture, heritage, and nature. It's, it all lends itself well to cruisers who want to come and enjoy a new destination. And of course, it's essentially a brave new world because they haven't been here before. 
Yes, and uh, and whoever has, we actually received our first international cruise uh, passengers in November 2021, and now every week we've activated new destinations. So not only Jeddah, but actually small towns like Yambo who've never seen uh, uh, international travels uh, travelers before. They have cruisers now stopping every week in Yambo. As part of the shore excursion and everything else? Yes, exactly. Now let's talk about physical. What are you doing to actually build these ports in a way that you're learning from the mistakes of others? So uh, uh, our original study said that we're going to receive the first cruise passenger uh, by the end of 2023, maybe 2024, after we build our iconic cruise terminal. And uh, we went around and saw different ports around the world. And I just realized that we don't need an iconic terminal to receive the first cruise passenger. We're going to build it, but we have amazing transportation infrastructure in the kingdom. We have many ports. Uh, Jeddah is uh, the biggest on the Red Sea. So we could uh, utilize uh, the, cruise, uh, the port infrastructure that is there, like many other ports around the world, and we start. And that's what we did. The ships just needed a place to tie up. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Not only that, we actually, now all our berths in Saudi Arabia have the best infrastructure from all over the world, and we can accommodate the largest cruise ship in four of our cruise ports around the kingdom. And yet, the perception is still there that it's dangerous, you shouldn't go. I mean, I've, I've talked about this throughout, the, throughout this show and others, that when I tell someone I'm coming to Saudi Arabia, mostly, of course, I'm flying in, they look at me like I'm deranged. Right? Because they, they think I'm going into harm's way. That's very true. And uh, uh, the good news is, as soon as they step foot in Saudi Arabia, they change their perception by the warmth of the people, by uh, the offering, by the much improved infrastructure uh, um, relative to the neighboring countries. We are in much better destination, much more richer, and much more interesting to these international travelers. Most people have this image, and of course that was enhanced in a negative way during COVID, of a cruise ship as a floating petri dish. Or they have an image of cruise ships as major polluters in the ocean. I've seen cruise ships over the last three or four years evolve where you have an entire decks of a cruise ship devoted to nothing but waste management, a zero tolerance policy that nothing can go over the side. That's in terms of the ships, but you also have to build that mentality into the ports. You are in the process of building new ports. So what are you doing? So I'll address both topics separately. So, so first, when it comes to COVID, it's very interesting what we did. We were one of the first countries to start cruising during COVID, which was in, uh, around end of May 2021. And it was important to make sure that we're aligned with the government. Whenever I talk to people, as uh, we're talking before this, Peter, that people said the last image of cruising for them is about you know, being stuck in a cruise and not you know, being able to disembark. And we. And so by the way, that, that applies to airplanes as well. The subtext that you're not necessarily hearing, but people are thinking is, I want to go from A to B, but I don't want to go to B and get stuck and not be able to get home, right? Yeah, yeah. and uh, we're lucky here that we have, an, uh, we have an agile government that is very open to the private sector. So we had an agreement with the government that if something happened, we agreed with them on a procedure. And it did actually happen. And, and on one of the uh, tours, we had a suspected case of COVID. And, you know, at that time, we had no vaccines. And so, you know, it, it was a complete paranoia. So we brought the ship back a day earlier and every single person disembarked within four hours. So that was taken care of uh, when it comes to COVID. Now, when it comes to environment and sustainability, also we're lucky that this government is very cognizant of this uh, environment. Forget about cruising for, uh, for a few seconds, but just think of a 
top-down vision. We have Green Saudi Initiative, we have Green Middle East. So all that has been putting an, uh, an immense amount of pressure on us to make sure when we start cruising, it's aligned with this vision. So the image of cruising in Saudi Arabia that we want to be out there is by people coming into Saudi Arabia for cruising, they're doing good to the environment. And some of the examples, we're building multiple programs for not only cruisers to come and participate in, for example, uh, uh, renewing some corals under the sea, but also for the cruise to participate in such programs. A second example is we're segmenting the Red Sea. So the more north you go, where the water is pristine and there isn't much uh, 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 pollutants, the big cruise lines won't be able to go there. So we'll make sure that we apply the most intringent standards when it comes to cruising. Plus, you have so many islands out there that have not been touched. They've not been explored. They've not been developed. And most probably for the vast majority of cruisers, they'll be left that way. So only a small number of cruisers who go on specific smaller uh, cruise lines with the highest standards of environmental protection will be able to go there. Other than the obvious optics issue, what's your biggest challenge? Our biggest challenge right now is to build the infrastructure fast enough for, uh, for the ambitions. As, as I mentioned, we need to get to one million passengers by 2030. This means that we need to make sure that we have the right infrastructure uh, uh, um, at the ports. The second most important example is making sure the destinations where people go are ready. So, for example, now we have one of the most amazing destinations that everybody wants to go to, Al-Ula. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It can only accommodate 800 people, which means that only the, the, very, the very lucky few would be able to afford it and also go there would be able to access uh, such a location. Now, we talk about cruise ships coming into to Jeddah now. I saw one just a few days ago, which was MSC, which is an Italian line with a predominantly European clientele. What about U.S. cruise ships? U.S. cruise ships have been... Uh, uh, they haven't been planning to come here because they're too far away. So we started with the European cruises. For the, for the U.S. cruises, especially the ones who run around, you know, the Caribbean or go around the Panama Canal to California and Alaska, it's for them, it's a long way to come here. That's one. The second thing, they've been uh, consumed with uh, the COVID situation and making sure that, uh, you know, they're... Uh, the, uh, the ships that are stopped, that they restart again, but we're in complete dialogue with them, and when the time is right, they'll come. I mean, there, there are U.S. cruise lines that will transit the Suez Canal, and they'll end up in Aqaba and Jordan. Well, wh what are they passing on the way to Aqaba? You guys. True. So are you in discussions with some of the U.S. cruise lines to actually you know, break new ground and actually stop in Saudi Arabia? So, so right now, we are in discussion with uh, uh, some of the subsidiaries or the, uh, 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 the companies owned by some of these, like Costa uh, and, uh, and AIDA from Carnival. And also, we're in discussion with uh, Royal Caribbeans and others. So Silver Sea, which is uh, owned by Royal Caribbean, they were the first one we started with. And they're the one who will come also this year and next year to come and stop in Saudi. And they just didn't stop and getting in like at 8 in the morning and leave at 5 in the afternoon. They actually stayed, didn't they? Yes, they did. Uh, actually, as we speak now, MSC stopped in Yambo for a whole uh, for overnight, and now they stop in Jeddah for an overnight because people want to go to Jeddah and want to explore the culture, want to explore the old town. They want to have an immersive experience. Definitely. My thanks to Fawaz. The other favorite thing about Jeddah is the architecture and design, being lovingly preserved by people like Ahmed Angawi. 
I visited his workshop to discuss how the ancient traditions and processes are being maintained. If you're lucky enough to come to Jeddah, and then if you're lucky enough to go to the Old City, uh, which, by, by the way, is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, which most people don't even know, you know, one of the real sad things about UNESCO World Heritage Sites is how many there are that people don't even know. They're either not properly presented or they're not properly publicized. Well, this one is just starting to come into its own. The restoration work is, is ongoing. It's tremendous opportunity to look at a very particular kind of architecture, which really defines the whole city, uh, but especially this part of the city. It's called Hijaz, and we're going to talk about that with uh, somebody who knows a lot about it. Uh, in fact, before he returned home to Jeddah, he was in Brooklyn at the <laughs> Pratt Institute. So he's already visited America, but he never left the technique. He never left the process. And the old school part of what his dad did in terms of an architect in not only studying, but embracing and perpetuating the process of Hijaz architecture. Ahmed Ngawi, welcome. Welcome. Pleasure to be here with you. I mean, since you went to Brooklyn, I just say... Forget about it. <laughs> yeah, forget. Come on, you can say it. I, can, I say it, but it's not perfectly, but forget <laughs> about it. <laughs> Good, we can start talking then. You grew up, of course, with your father as an amazing architect. Yes. As an amazing designer. Yes. But one of the things that your dad did, which so many societies have forgotten, hmm. is he didn't necessarily innovate in terms of new. Hmm. He preserved old. Yes. And explain Hijaz architecture. Um, in order to, to really go into the Hijaz architecture art in that sense, maybe we'll take you a bit way back a bit and to talk about the idea of um, uh, geometry or, or the language of the universe, in a sense, because this is a manifestation of that. A lot of cities similar to Jeddah uh, or the Hijaz region that has been like a cosmopolitan uh, cities, meaning that people coming from all over the world, passing by, getting their goods, interacting And they were with coming it. by here to go to Mecca, too. Yes. It was part of the pilgrimage. Definitely. So we have a central point. Mecca is for us is the central part as human beings. It's, it's been said it's the first house for every being. So it's not only for Muslims in the sense of the Quran and the verse. So we believe that everything within the universe have a centrality. Even in geometry, if you look at it, there's always a central point, a central point to start and a central point to end. So for us, especially in the Hazar region and in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Mecca plays a very important role. Well, we are away. Uh, from it, we pay towards it, and once we close, we uh, revolve around it, and we do what we call the Umrah, um, and we do it seven times. Uh, uh, once we close, we close and the Umrah time. Mm -hmm. So uh, Mecca, it it does symbolize this ideology of diversity within unity, and that's something I really learned a lot from my father. Uh, we come from an ancestor, uh, uh, from a family of Mecca, a Hashemite family. And our first role is to serve the guests of God. Whoever comes to Mecca, whoever comes to theirs, we serve them and to make sure that they have the everything they need. So in every house in Mecca, there's always been an influence, an interaction between different cultures and, 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 and regions. That's why you will see the food, the dialect, the dress. There's always been a, a diversity of different cultures. Uh, and what's important is the idea of harmony and balance. Uh, you would see something that represents uh, Indian culture or Moroccan or Yemeni or Egyptian. That's but, what the pilgrims brought with them. Yes, but that doesn't mean and that doesn't define that we have our own. So there was something there and it interacted with something that came along with us. So that's the whole idea between inhale and exhale. It's like my father always says, it's like a breathing moment. And in order, like the heart, you always have blood coming in and out, keep pumping blood all the time. Hajj is always going to be happening. So it's going to be each time somebody coming in and out through this beautiful city. 
But for such a long time, nearly eight decades, it was really the secret of the pilgrims because you were a closed kingdom. The only people who could come and get a visa were on a, on a religious pilgrimage. Yes. And then about two and a half years ago, things changed. Yes. And all of a sudden, you can now get a visa online yeah. and you can come. That doesn't mean most Americans are coming. They're still yeah. not coming. Yes. But for people who do come, they're seeing something that's essentially been hidden mm-hmm. for hundreds of years. Absolutely. I mean, now Saudi Arabia is open. And it's easy to come. The process of doing the visa, as you mentioned, is so easy. Even for us Saudis to be in Saudi, to look at the things and the hidden gems that we have, has been fascinating. Although, although, let's be honest, all of Saudi is a hidden gem because nobody knew it. Yes, that's true. Like any, any other places, when you travel around, there's always a hidden gems and always interesting spaces. Yes, they're hidden gems within places that are known. Yes. This is hidden gems within a, a place. gem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but now it's, it's, the doors are, are, are welcome. Every house, as you notice here, is welcoming. Uh, this is part of our culture. This is not something new. This is, we, were, we were like that before. We've always been open. How can we not, if you have a place like Mecca, it's always welcoming people to come along. So uh, we, the space in Saudis, we, for us even, the, 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 in a lot of the different generations, we've been saying, where was that? We haven't seen that part of Saudi, the beautiful nature that you see around. Um, there's an easy uh, uh, movement within, within the area in Saudi Arabia. Even as artists now, we're discovering a lot of things, expressing new things. Uh, so it's a very interesting time to be living, especially as creative, especially as young people who's ambitious to see what's around them. And Saudi is such a big country, I think it's safe to say that so many communities within Saudi didn't even know about each other. Oh, definitely. I mean, as you know, we live in a time now you can might know something about a different country but just looking at your phone, but you know something next door from your neighbor. And I think that's a big part of it, how you set up a plan or a city. And, and within Saudis, you have this, uh, this, this concept of neighboring. And when now it's, um, uh, it's been easy to, to go around and, and to discover. And as a matter of fact, it's been encouraged that you go and document and travel uh, uh, with the uh, Ministry of Tourism. It's, you see a lot of programs that's happening here and there. Ministry of Culture also supporting a lot of the young people to, you know, uh, to document and to archive and to innovate. So I think uh, a great change happening from top down and from bottom up. That's a perfect, perfect mix. What's the challenge, though? Uh, like in everything, is always the challenges. And because um, uh, you're going like zero to sixty here, uh, we we are yeah, we are on a speed for sure. But once you have an anchor uh, or also a direction, that's important. You can speed up very fast. But once you know where you're heading, and you know where you're coming from, that's important. What you can get with you and what you can uh, accomplish when you're there. Well, part of speeding up in your case is actually slowing down because you're trying to maintain the original process, mm-hmm. the original design, the mm-hmm. original workmanship, mm-hmm. hand me down by hand, yes. not machine, yes. of all the construction, especially the wood, yes. that, that makes up so much of the old city. Definitely. And this has also been a topic for many different cultures around the world that they always face that challenge. How can technology and machinery really uh, not replace human, or, or not, uh, not only that, uh, how can you develop objects and products that is sustainable, that is friendly to the environment? Is our aim to just to supply the demand, and we have a chain of factories, and we saw that before that happened, whatever happened with the Industrial Revolution, the fact is how people moved into towns and cities or industrial. But now I think in all over the world, you want to feel a sense of being human. What does it mean to be human? Why we love nature? Why, why I cannot explain why we look at a flower and feel a certain thing about it? Why we love the sea when we look at it? When we hold wood, you feel there is a, a certain warmth in it. And I think there is well, this... Well, I want to talk about the wood. Yes. Because every time I come to this region, 
I'm transfixed. I'm fascinated by the Arab doors. Yeah. The heavy wooden doors. Yes. With all the screen work, with all the, the lattice work, mm-hmm. with all the design, with all the metal work. Yes. And those doors, in many cases, define the house itself. Yes. Each house uh, used to represent or uh, reflect or inspired by the culture that they interacted with. Um, uh, if you look at the mutawwifin uh, or the people who are in charge of serving the guests of God in Mecca and Medina, they're also in, in charge of a certain region around the world. So you have people coming from Indonesia, people coming from Turkey, people coming from Egypt. So of course, and for a long time, it will have an exchange of uh, knowledge and culture in between. And another thing, of course, the more decorative the house is, the more it works that it took, the more, of course, a certain status of a certain family that have this. Right. The more the more elaborate the door, the more elite the person. Yes. Or the more elite they wanted to be. <laughs> yeah, that could be. And also the, the high craftsmanship that it took time because you need to have an appreciation of craftsmanship. Uh, that's why when the apprenticeship come along, that's why when you have... Uh, 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 somebody that supports that, and and we need we need patrons for basically for art and craft. And you're doing those workshops. Uh, what I'm trying to do for sure, in to, to promote a space uh, for people who are interested into into craft and art, and uh, to develop and uh, uh, the culture of makers. I do believe we live in a time of of makers. We have information everywhere, knowledge is everywhere. It's what we do with this knowledge. So and to have it within the center of Al Balad in the old city, it makes it important to keep it alive and revive. Uh, any old city have an object or product it exports to it uh, and it, can, it depends on economy so what is Jeddah exporting what is the old cities of Saudis exporting so I, I like to focus on that first to document what's there and then to analyze geometrically and analyze it uh, how is it done my thanks to Ahmed now imagine an old country where 70% of the population is now under the age of 35 that in itself is amazing and running all the tourism initiatives is a very young team, led by Fad Hamidadjan. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Saudi Arabia is such an enigma to most Americans. And yet, think about it as a closed country for 79 years. The only people who really got a chance to visit it were religious pilgrims. And then, about two and a half years ago, wow, something happened. The doors opened up, visas were granted online, and for the first time, what was considered a forbidden company, a country, became a, a welcoming country. And Everybody has a chance to come. We've been here. This is my sixth trip to Saudi Arabia. I first came, by the way, in 1990, 32 years ago, under different circumstances. I was here for Gulf War One. I. I was hanging out in Dharan with Iraqi Scud missiles coming in, but that was 32 years ago. Today, the missiles that are being fired are missiles of innovation, change, and creativity, and I'm not exaggerating. Joining me now, the CEO of the Saudi Tourism Authority, Fad Hamadadin. Fad, uh, you and I have known each other for a while. I have to say that every time I return, 
You know, there's, there's, we, we talk about change, but this is like hypersonic change. This is, I mean, it's, it's sort of like, let's change everything at once because you can and it's time to do it. But the question is, can you do it responsibly? Can you do it by at the same time maintaining the culture and the history and the heritage? And uh, it seems to be at least every time I come back that you can. Well, first, Peter, thank, um, thank you for having me. And it's such a pleasure having you in Riyadh. Yeah, I believe um, what's happening in Saudi is simply uh, it skipped two generations. The, the difference um, over all the years and the decades that you talked about when the country was closed, um, the country was run by people at a certain generation and age that um, had very little um, youth um, joining them at the steering wheel. Here, um, today, we have women on the steering wheel physically and we have youth on the steering wheel strategically. And uh, with that, we, um, we just feel that the, uh, the ambition, the creativity, the speed, the dynamism of the youth is really driving the, the transformation. And, um, and simply when I say skipping two generations, there is no gradual uh, you know, uh, cultivation, gradual You've gone, you've gone zero to 60. Correct. So I think that's that's what's really happening. Um, now uh, you also said something that I thought was interesting. It was um, it was closed, and now it's the, it was the most closed, and now it's the most welcoming. I think the people were always the most welcoming, but we didn't know it. Exactly. It's now the the opportunity has come, where Saudi is no longer you know uh, presented by the institution, but it's presented by the people, and there's nothing better than than tourism to um, to build these bridges between people, and I and I believe that uh, tourism. I genuinely believe that, that tourism is is uh, is a sector that allows people to move freely from a place to another, and they become uh, knowingly or unknowingly. Uh, agents of good. The thing that's amazing to me is how fast this has happened. I said it before. I mean, here you are. You're the CEO of the Saudi Tourism Authority. Was there a Saudi Tourism Authority ten years ago in this in this in this sort of way? There wasn't really. There wasn't. Not even a year and a half ago. That's how fast this is happening. Yeah, and we, you know, we have probably the highest. Uh, not just the highest growth, but the highest even, uh, you know, this sector is a female-driven uh, sector. You know this better than anyone. Um, they make the calls, they make the decisions. So we wanted to make sure that they, uh, that, uh, they are represented as well in our organization. So I'm very proud to say that the Saudi Tourism Authority has the highest female uh, percentage <laughs> in any other government agency in Saudi today. So the question that I raised a few minutes ago is the one I'll raise again with you now. We know your trajectory. We know it's fast moving and forward, but how do you maintain some perspective and context in all of this? So if, um, if this is done for the people, so if, if let's take all the tr transformation that is taking place. Is it done for, for anyone but the people of Saudi? The answer is no. The same thing with tourism. Um, there are lots of things we've learned, lessons learned from all other mature destinations. One of which is um, when, when you talk about tourism, it's not about tourists only. It's about residents. And we believe it's residents first. So there are many people that talk about sustainability and all that. Now we have an opportunity to design with sustainability framework. From, from the, the ground up. From the ground up. Precisely. So with that, we're starting with the people, the communities. The, the environment, 
and our culture that we believe is the greatest uh, asset that we need to preserve. And of course, you're discovering new things about old things every day. That's the interesting part. I, for one, I've learned more about Saudi in the last two years than I've ever learned in my 45 years of age. Okay, so now that you've opened that door, what's the most surprising thing you've learned? How diverse and rich um, the, the culture is from one region to another. I've traveled to places that I never knew, you know, um, had many people. And then I found it's not just people, but it's, it's, um, it's different weather, it's different uh, geography, topography, and different habits and, 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 and value systems. And, and it's so rich, so rich. Look, in the last week, we've been to 90 islands in the Red Sea. We've been to forests. We've been to unbelievable dunes. Uh, we've been, you know, we've been to places where we were the only people there, right? And then we've been to places where cutting-edge art, cutting-edge performance. I mean, earlier this week, out of nowhere, I found myself at an Alicia Keys concert in the middle of the desert in Alula. Who knew? Who knew? Uh, that's, uh, that's very true. Um, I think the... Um the, the experiences that I personally encountered with the locals um, in certain places within Saudi were very uh, moving. Um, they really made me see, um, you know, see myself, see the country that I thought I knew, see the people that I thought I, I live with in a new light. And I would like maybe to maybe talk about what I believe travelers are looking for generally. Everybody's looking for an experience. And you were telling me earlier today, people want the local insight, the local insider experience, not the, uh, the usual copycats of any other destination that is commercial. Now, this place is so rich with these experiences. And, in, in, and they're doing it. The people of Saudi are so authentically raw, but they're so, they're so generous in their own ways. And um, I like to, to believe that the, the most memorable experiences when I travel are those that leave me with wonder. And wonder is simply when both your mind and heart are engaged and interested. And it's when you stop and, and say, oh, I mean, or leave that experience and see yourself, see the place, see the people in a new light. And Saudi has so much to offer in that. My thanks to Fad. And if you're looking for a romantic, beautiful, living, breathing archeological site, then head to Alula. It's a spectacular desert location. Just about every day, there's a new discovery about the Nabataean civilization and others. And for those of you familiar with Petra in Jordan, be prepared to be impressed with Alula. And I spoke with Dr. Rebecca Foote. She's the Director of Archaeology and Cultural Heritage Research at the Royal Commission for Alula. There, the work continues. Dr. Rebecca Foote, who really is in, in charge of all of the archaeological work here at Alula, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site for starters, but it's so much more than that. Doctor, welcome. Thank you. When you first came here, you're from you're from Rockville, Maryland, right? Right. This had to be a brave new world for you to immerse in a place that was so different to begin with, but also so essentially unexplored. Yes. I mean, I had lived uh, many places in the Middle East prior to here. But this had, for most of my time in the Middle East, been 
considered something very closed and very conservative. And so I was quite surprised when I came here to find it much more open and, like the rest of the Middle East, welcoming. You know, what's what's fascinating for me is here's a kingdom that was closed from the day it became a kingdom for over 79 years. The only people who got visas were coming in for religious pilgrimage, but they weren't issuing tourism visas. It just didn't happen, right? And and then all of a sudden in 2018, boom. I mean, they started saying it was like people could come. And so it was a brave new world for everyone, especially in a country that there was no real tourism infrastructure. Exactly. So, but from your professional perspective, you had to like, basically, you were opening new doors every day. Yes, because uh, this place, Alula, had been chosen to be in Vision 2030, to be the leading in the heritage tourism market, that the kingdom wants to diversify its uh, economic base, and tourism is one of those vectors. And this site, because of Hegra, because of the World Heritage Site and the many other layers of history, it was chosen to develop that. And that was really my charge. And of course, here in Alula, where I'm talking to you now, I mean, this was a, a capital for the Nabataeans, wasn't it? It wasn't a capital. It was sister city to the capital, to, to Petra. It was... Petra in Jordan. Yes, exactly. For those people who remember Raiders of the Lost Ark, that was the treasury building in uh, in uh, in the movie still there today of course one of the most amazing entrances you've ever seen when you come down the gorge and then it just opens up here the Nabataeans seem to have been everywhere because every time you turn a corner into the rocks there's either a tomb or something of value yes it it's very different in its sense because Petra, where you go down, like you say, that gorge through the Sikh and into a basin where there's all the tombs and the other structures. And here, it's you go, you open up into a plain, and it's that expansive sense of, of serene beauty. So it's different but the same because, as you say, the tombs, the carved tombs are very similar. You know, Zahi Hawass, who's a friend of mine who's the chief Egyptologist in, in Egypt, um, said to me one day, and it was, I mean... He said it very casually. To me, it was like astounding that, you know, you go to the Egyptian Museum or as they're about to open the Grand Egyptian Museum, and what you see there represents only about like 6% of what they think is out there. I mean, it's just like, and every day, new deliveries are being made to the museum of something something else that's been, you know, you know discovered in the desert. Do you feel the same way here? Yes, yes. From a, from a different standpoint, that it's uh, less known to the world, uh, particularly the earlier periods, because the because of Petra and the Nabataeans, many people might have heard of that. Uh, they didn't know necessarily that the kingdom extended all the way here, and that that's what made Hegra special as a crossroads and a and a place through which the particularly the incense trade had to pass, and it was their their major southern city. But prior to that, there was what I didn't know about when I came here is there uh, this place we're about to go out and film in is Dedan, ancient Dedan, which say 500 to a thousand years before the Nabataeans, it the North Arabian kingdoms. These, the Dedanites and the Lehanites had made this their capital and had had great regional power. The, For example, the Gulf of Aqaba, what we call the Gulf of Aqaba today, was referred to by um, 
uh, writers from the Mediterranean as the Gulf of Lihian. So it had, it, we still don't, that's the great thing is we're just revealing the teams that are working here, the Saudi-French team that's that's working here in Dedan. It's just revealing really the depth and detail to that society. And of course, some of the things that they discovered were re- only recent. I mean, I mean, when people could see it from the air. Yes. Yes. Well, that, yeah, particularly the, the um, societies before that, the late prehistoric prehistoric, late prehistory. So say like from 6,000 to 2,000 BC, before this major kingdom, uh, that these mostly funerary monuments, but there's also a ritual one that will fly over, um, that that they were um, much more organized because there's no way you could build these, these monuments, these buildings, Without having some sort of um, uh, concerted effort of a of a group of more than probably even a family, and and to have some sense that that not everyone was out hunting and gathering or um, just living with uh, dealing with the subsistence of life that there were that you could put the time and effort into building major monuments and legacy to their own history exactly. To me, I'm sure it's to you as well, archaeology, all of archaeology is incomplete without storytelling. And you're the storyteller here. What's the story that you learned here that you can now tell? That people uh, had an interest and an ability to leave a, a built legacy. Whether or not they had a sense of history, I guess it would be hard to say, but they had a sense of their own presence and wanted to, in some respect, leave leave that uh, as a permanent essence. So by building a tomb and burying your dead in it, and and it, some of these sites, it's clear that there were successive burials there, that there is a sense of your own lineage, your own, um, it, it, at least your own personal history, whether or not it you have a sense of the cosmos larger than that. We don't know, but um, there was certainly that sense of of return to a place and its importance symbolically. There are some uh, there are different theories. As to, most of them are, for example, uh, built up on a precipice. So is this a territorial marker or a sense well, of... That the spirit is looking down? Yes, that's possible. Or, uh, I mean... The, Certainly, it, it's where if I were going to be buried here, or I think you were going to be buried, that's where you would want to be built rather than down in the water floor. People, you know what? People always want to be buried with a view, <laughs> as if they think they're going to be out there looking at it, right? Exactly. So, uh, so yeah, it's it's hard to know what was in the mind of the ancients, but um, but definitely that there are just thousands of these burial monuments. And that's the thing. Every time you turn a corner, you see something carved into the rock. But then some of them are really ornately carved. You have huge monuments that lead you to the tombs, right? Um, like, like you saw in Petra. Yes, Petra and, and the Nabataeans are slightly later, and that may have to do with technological advancement so that you could carve like that. I right. mean, it's quite exact in its carving, so you needed tools that could do that, whereas a few thousand years before that, that technology might not have been... But the the carving of the of the great entrances, that probably designated someone who was wealthy, elite, a leader. Absolutely yes, and uh, fortunately, one of the differences 
uh, between the tombs here and the ones in Petra is that there are many more inscriptions. There are 30-odd inscriptions associated with the tombs here, and they do tell exactly that. There was a doctor, there were military leaders, women. Many of the women uh, are, were the patrons of these tombs. So it's uh, certainly that if you were elite, if you were male or female, you had access to capital and, and interest in that prestige expression. I remember going to St. John's Co-Cathedral in Malta, and what was amazing to me about that visit was that as you walked on the marble floors, what you were walking on were on the tombs of the Knights of Malta. And the, the carvings in the marble were intricate stories, you know, basically highlighting their exploits, their, de- their, their, their daredevil feats, their, you know, all the, their deeds that they did. So they just didn't die in a, in, in a, in a vacuum. They died with the story told on their tomb. The, the raiders, you know, the, the grave robbers preceded you by a few hundred years probably. And what do you find inside the tombs these days? Well, many of them, as you say, have unfortunately either in antiquity or more recently been been looted. But Dr. Leila Nahmi, who has been uh, leading the excavation at Hegra for uh, more than a decade. She had a hunch that behind one of the tombs that had uh, a lot of drifted sand up against it, that it possibly, that drifted fill had been there for some time. So she and had been undiscovered by the, exactly. by the grave robbers. So uh, pulled it away and, in fact, did find that uh, there were a number of bodies in that tomb still. And a primary one was so intact, still wrapped in three layers of a shroud and um, wearing a date palm, a date necklace, and was even still um, laid on a leather stretcher, had been laid on it on a leather stretcher and was still lying on it. Yes. And so uh, it was an amazing find and it's really informed about burial practices. And where is that body and stretcher today? The body, of course, is just a a skeleton. It's uh, here in, in KSA being well looked after. I will tell you this. When we went to the early days of the Grand Egyptian Museum, before it even opened, their restoration work was still going on. Their restoration rooms were still operating. And we had a chance to go in and watch, up close and personal. And they brought me over to a table. And they said, we're going to show you something we've not shown anybody else because we're so amazed that we found it essentially intact. And it sounds funny. King Tut's underwear. They showed me the underwear and the fabric was still intact. And of all things you would find... That was one. Wow. I mean, I mean, it was like, that's a discovery, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and they found the bed in which he slept. Um, it turns out that uh, he was not very tall. You know, you, you learn things about, you can, you can make those assumptions at that point. Right. right. What's the biggest, for you, revelation from Alula? So, again, historically, I would say... Uh, that before the Nabataeans, so my cred for getting this job is that I had been, uh, I had excavated in Jordan for a number of years, particularly in the south of Jordan, at a site that was Nabataean through to um, Islamic period, and I'm an early Islamic specialist. So I knew about the Nabataean kingdom having uh, extended th- down this far, and I knew from the early Islamic period uh, about that. But prior to that, so this period of the Dedanites and the Lichenites, and then earlier than that, all of the prehistory. I did not know or expect it to be so rich and so dense um, in the monumental remains for that. So from your perspective, you're the kid in the candy store now. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's an extraordinary opportunity. And like you say, every day you're learning something new. For most first-time visitors here, and by the way, most people here will be first-time visitors since they only opened the country about a year and a half ago. When they come to Alula, they're going to go see Elephant Rock. They're going to go see, they might want to go stargazing at night because it's a great dark sky environment. Mm. Uh, What's the one thing you'd recommend for friends of yours who are coming over that they have to do? Oh, that's hard to say because the classic, of course, is to go to Hegra. That is the the most impressive, particularly to um, the unordinary tourists. It's the World Heritage Site. A lot of people have that on their bucket list to see World Heritage Site. So you do have to see that. But uh, Dedan, the the capital of these dynasties prior to that, uh, there's the lion tombs, which are um, the, the facade with two pairs of, of these uh, lions uh, guarding above them. In the, They themselves, that sculpture is not as impressive as the context. That is the thing to take in here because beyond the heritage, there is the landscape. It's just gorgeous. The, the red sandstone contrasting with the green oasis and then the sandstone itself changes in color when you go from where we are now in the center of the Alula Valley up north to Hegra, where it becomes more honey-colored. Then there's um, the up the uplands to the west, where there's basalt because of a volcano um, that has erupted many times over the years, having covered that that upland area. It's just so diverse, and you can and you can see how people would have been inspired by it in order to uh, create the monuments that they have. You know, I, I do a show on PBS called Hidden. It's about, it's a one-hour special on a particular destination that talks about all the things that are not in the guidebook, not in the brochure. You know, our mantra is, you know, no gift shop, no TripAdvisor logo, no tour buses. And it's one thing to talk about a destination and say, oh, here's something you you don't know about this destination. But when it comes to Saudi Arabia, everything is what you don't know about the destination. All of Saudi Arabia has been hidden. Really. Indeed. And then, again, back to the sort of more personal level, that people here are really open and welcoming and happy to have visitors. And the hospitality, the warmth that you find throughout the Middle East is no less here than than anywhere else that I'm sure you've experienced in the other places you've been to. So um, to meet the farmers and the the locals here, otherwise, it's just just a wonderful experience. And it makes your job easier. It does. My thanks to Rebecca, to Fad Hamidadin, to Fawaz Faruqi, to Ahmed Angawi, and to John Pagano. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you don't have to venture far. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. 
This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.